When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Bear in Mind, the official podcast of Cal Athletics. Here's your host, Todd McKim. Welcome back to the penultimate version of Bear in Mind for the fall season. Todd McKim, I'll be joined a little bit later on, hopefully, with uh, our play-by-play man, Joe Starkey, get his thoughts about his final game behind the mic for the Bears, and then uh, a lot of other things in store as well. But first of all, head coach Justin Wilcox, congratulations on the big game victory. It was a a game in which both teams got off to pretty good offensive starts. Uh, first four possessions of the game combined, four scores, and then kind of the defenses took over for quite some time. And then you guys were able to explode in the fourth quarter with the 21 uh, points in the fourth quarter, sparked by your defense. And in these these kinds of games, and a lot of games when you have a big crowd, and the crowd certainly was a factor in this one for the Bears, sometimes it just takes that one little spark to ignite the engine and away you go. And when you guys got that scoop and score from Peter Sermon, that that seemed to be the turning point in the football game. Tell us how emotions and crowd noise and all that stuff can play a part in a game like this. Oh, it's huge. I mean, our players love the environment. Um, they, you know, were talking about it after the game and even leading up to the game that week, just do the buzz around the, the facility and people at practice. And so it was a great environment. The fans were incredible. And, when Daniel stripped him of the ball and Jack picked up the second fumble and ran it in, the whole place went crazy and you could just feel the momentum shift right there. Not that it was bad, but that definitely turned the tide in our favor. And uh, we were able to capitalize on that and finish out the game. Uh, you know, we, we felt like, as you mentioned, there's probably opportunities earlier in the game to create some space and distance if we would have 
just uh, done a couple things a little bit better, some simple things, but uh, the game was hard fought and we found a way to win. So that's great. You did. And you know, a couple of uh, end zone interceptions. Certainly you could attack on some more points earlier. No question about that. But I, I thought one of the keys was the fact in the second half, you were able to get Jaden Ott out into some space. And you've talked about this before to try to get your best players in space, one-on-one opportunities. And, and in the run game in particular, instead of maybe pounding it inside, but to get some quick, you know, quick flips to the outside and get him into space. But he just, uh, you know, the first guy coming up on him just doesn't usually make the tackle and he's able to get positive yards. Yeah. He's a very talented player. We went into the game with a target number of rushes and, and also pass targets for Jaden. And we came, we actually just, just exceeded it. You know, the first half we were short, we got him the ball in the pass game, but we didn't get it enough in the run game. And some of that was you know, what Stanford was doing. We were able to get the ball on the perimeter, some other guys and get some positive yards, but we definitely wanted to get Jaden more touches. And we were able to do that in the second half. And as we all know, when he does touch it, uh, good things happen. So we want to keep getting him the ball. And um, he did a great job in the second half and it was a big part of the success. And then after the first two Stanford series, they scored a touchdown and a field goal defensively. What were you able to do to kind of limit uh, their success? Uh, you know, uh, Todd, a lot of it is we, we tried to, Kind of, t- we take a cu- couple chances early trying to support guys, but the way you win, and we just talked about this, is the one on ones. And so we had guys tipping a ball, guys making a one on one tackle. We had a couple one on one PBUs, and and that's how you play winning football. If you're trying to guess what the other team is running the whole time, it's a very difficult game, and you can't double every receiver. You can't always have three extra guys at the point of attack, and so. I think you you saw the reason we won the game on, on defense was, you know, Daniel Scott making two huge plays, uh, really three with the third down stop. And then guys getting off a block on that third down, Jeremiah Irby knocking the ball down, D-line tipping the ball. You know, I think like all those things, that's how you win on defense. It's the small, the one-on-one wins here and there that create a second long or a third down stop. And then the huge plays that turn the tide it, it's uh, it's not a matter of, you know, all these cute calls and trick trick defenses. It just doesn't work like that. So the guys had one on one wins and we played much better. So as Stanford kicks a big game record, 61 yard field goal, uh, which was important not only to him, but for some other people in other parts of uh, maybe even the country um, based on the final score. Uh, the celebration begins. So for the second year in a row in the big game, the Cal fans come out onto the field in mass. After you go over and shake hands with Coach Shaw, maybe some of their coaches and players, where do you go to get the heck out of there? Honestly, I kind of go away from the middle of the field. And <laughs> unfortunately, I've been able to, uh, you know, be a part of this a few times now, thankfully. But yeah, I make my way up, away from the middle of the field toward the to the perimeter and then just turn around and watch. I mean, that is the most enjoyable, I mean, football moment, I think. I mean, it's up there with any other moment I've had is to watch the players and the people and the joy on their faces. Because in that moment, like, I'm excited and, and I have, you know, I'm, I'm emotions too, but you're usually so just exhausted, you know, from it. And now it's just like, I really... Um, I think I, that moment is 
uh, mean is more meaningful than any of the others just because you're watching all the other people enjoy the, the moment you know so that's what i take from it and so i always just kind of walk away and then turn around and watch and kyle sits there and starts tugging at my shirt we got to go talk to this person talk to that person so i give kyle the old stiff arm and then uh, just say hey hold on let me let me have this moment here and just watch these folks yeah i, w- I was trying to you know, always try to get interviews after the game and you try to get the key players okay so defensively, you know, Jackson Sermon and, and, and Daniel Scott, and but you can't find them, okay? Yeah. You just can't find them. So you, you you tend to go to a location and hope somebody comes by you. And again, you try to get away from the mosh pit, and people are coming from all directions, okay? You, yeah. you, I'm, I'm not an owl. I'm certainly not Linda Blair in The Exorcist. I can't swivel my head completely around. And it's, I mean, I ended up turning an ankle. As a result, yeah. they tried to get away from people. But, but you're right. It's so much fun, you know, the emotion and to see the not only the players, but the fans, primarily yeah. students, primarily students, um, a, a great release for them. I'm sure after maybe a tough chemistry test at the end of the term, maybe, maybe they run around and celebrate. I don't know. But uh, just to see the joy in their faces is, is really fun to watch. And then you you give the team a little extra time in the locker room, too just because it takes a long time for kids to come into the locker room, but you give them some extra time to, to hug and, and cheer and, and the whole deal. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, you, we kind of talked like, Hey, it's a 30 minute, mm-hmm. you know, it's a 30 minute deal before we're all meeting in the locker room. And I think that's probably even almost short, um, but it is just a, a magical moment. And um, uh, the players and the students, but, and then just the fans and how, excited they are and how much it means to them it's just a magical magical moment i'll never forget that and i appreciate it i thankfully got to uh, witness that a few times and be a part of it so i'll i'll never forget that yeah no question about it. all right uh, on to the final game of the regular season here ucla coming to town on friday afternoon uh an unusual time with a friday it reduces your prep time um it's the day after thanksgiving so it's just an unusual day and time to play a football game. But UCLA is the opponent, a really good football team. They were in the, the conference championship race until their loss to USC in one of the more exciting offensive games we've seen this year. Give us your thoughts about the Bruins. Boy, uh, electric on offense. It starts with the quarterback. Uh, really uh, phenomenal athlete and can throw the ball. And uh, the run game is really strong. You got the running back, you know, Charbonnet is a big, big guy. Uh, both those, you know, Dorian Charbonnet, those are like big time NFL guys and the uh, receiver Bobo and Casimir Allen. Um, they just have a lot of weapons. And so the fact that they run the quarterback and they throw it, it just the stress on the defense changes completely compared to a team that maybe doesn't run the quarterback as much. Um, so there's a reason they're scoring so many points so often. Chip Kelly has has always been a guy offensively balanced offense. I mean, but but the the run game is what sets it all up for his offense. And he had great running attacks at Oregon, and he's got one now here at UCLA. What makes that system difficult to defend? Well, they get really good at what they do, and they um, just do you know week to week the formations change, and everything has a complement. So the run game whatever the scheme is always has a compliment, whether you got to defend the quarterback or it's play action pass. And when you have to defend the quarterback, the math changes for defense, you know, 
Because if you're going one for one, which you don't want to do, you only got one coverage and that's zero, which is not good. Not good because the matchups in the back end now get incredibly difficult. So, um, I, you know, it, it just, a, it's a great system. He knows it inside and out. He's been really successful with it wherever he's been. And um, on top of the system, you have the quarterback, the running back and the receivers uh, and a good offensive line, a big, strong offensive line. Yeah, when you have a 50-year starting quarterback, that certainly uh, helps an offense, no question about it. We'll talk more about UCLA in the pregame show, the Bud Light tailgate show, uh, beginning at 12.30 on Friday, the Bears against UCLA. Let's look forward, since this is our last opportunity to talk to you during the football season, about the next step, the next phase, and the never-ending process of a football program, and that would be recruiting and letter of intent day. The first one comes up in late December. Give us uh, your idea of what you're looking for and maybe how many scholarships. Of course, that is, you know, I imagine, pretty much in flux based on the portal and then the portal activity. How do you balance all of that together as you get ready um, to you know, sign a class or part of a class in late December? Well, the numbers do uh, change based on some of the decisions made here in the near future by our players. Um, you know, I couldn't give you a hard number right now because it's just a dynamic environment with how many guys are going to stay or move on with their football careers. Um, the After the game, you know, it's a, it's a dead period um, until that following Friday, which would be the second. You got the second and the third, uh, which the, the uh, contact period opens back up and then you're kind of into recruiting mode, the second and third and all the way through until that Wednesday assigning day, uh, the 21st. Okay. So you also have inside of that, the, the portal opening up on the fifth, where you're going to see a number of names throughout the country in and out of the portal. We're going to be active in both high school uh, or in all three of high school, junior college and uh, transfer portal recruiting. And that's just the environment that we're now in, in college football. And we still think there's really good high school players. We also think there's junior college and portal players that can help our team. Yeah, you could go into December thinking, okay, we got 17. I'll just throw out a number. And then you you sign 17. And then all of a sudden, when you go into February, you might have four or five more. And, and then you get to May, which is the final cutoff period for portal transfers to be eligible to, that next year. And you could have two more. So it's, and it's just a crazy world that we're living in. What are there any specific areas or numbers and areas that you feel you need to address the most? Yeah, we're going to recruit everybody. At all positions, but heavily, um, you know, offensive line will will be uh, active. Defensive back will be active. Um, but every other position, I would you know expect somebody, you know, at least a player, but more at offensive line and defensive back on on paper. And then you'll have some coaching vacancies as well. How do you hope to address that? Yeah, so that'll speed up. Uh, really, is starting this weekend uh, rapidly and. Uh, you know, there's not a timeline. It's, a, it's like one of those things you don't, it it's, uh, needs to be quick, but also very thoughtful and uh, not, not going to rush it, but at the same time have a, you know, there is a, a timing element to it because of all this is going to be taking place. So as soon as uh, we get to, to Friday night, Saturday, that'll be accelerating rapidly. And then do you sit down with each player on your roster? Because in the day of the portal, you got to re-recruit everybody, don't you? Yeah, I mean, we have discussions with our players all the time. I mean, I, I like to think that we don't have to, you know, set up a meeting to talk to a player. And so we've had a lot of discussions with a lot of players throughout the season about a number of different topics. And so 
Uh, we'll also have a kind of a, a postseason wrap up with uh, each player on, you know, football and, and other things outside of football and uh, identify anything that we can do to help them better and also areas where they can help themselves. Even though you won't be playing in a bowl game, does strength and conditioning continue, you know, during finals week and before the players are gone for, I mean, almost four or five weeks? Yeah, so there's uh, there's some things you can and can't do. Um, much of it will be voluntary. A lot of our guys will get some time after the game and kind of rest their bodies. We will have some postseason surgeries that will be taking place, uh, guys that need to get some some things fixed. And then um, uh, once they finish up their finals, they'll have a break to go home, and then we'll get back at it uh, in January for a strong winter conditioning. Do the kids come back before classes start? or They, they do. They do. Uh, they do. Now, a lot of times, uh, Todd, that first week is going to be uh, a voluntary week. There's only so many weeks throughout the year that you can make mandatory. And so we put those voluntary weeks in certain spots. So it's, you know, return to school and guys can kind of get their feet on the ground and some other weeks throughout the year that are common to have a voluntary lift week. And then we'll have probably a good at least uh, four to five weeks of winter conditioning based on when spring ball is going to be. And that'll be determined here in the near future on, on our spring ball dates. As we mentioned, we'll talk more about UCLA as we get closer to game time on Saturday, on Friday, I should say. But for now, we appreciate your time and uh, have a good short week, relatively short week of practice. And we'll talk to you on Friday. Thanks, Todd. Go Bears. Head coach Justin Wilcox. The Bears and UCLA will be on with the Bud Light Tailgate Show beginning at 1230 p.m. from Memorial Stadium. Well, uh, joining me now, and it's my pleasure, my guest, and my, my honor to have uh, Joe Starkey uh, join me for the podcast today. Joe will be calling his final game with the Bears Friday. Go figure, a Friday college football game as the Bears take on UCLA. And before we talk about, you know, the big game and memories, this, that, and the other, but I, I wanted to know what your memories are of your very first broadcast. Uh, everybody remembers the last one, but do you remember the first one? What were the, what were the uh, conditions? What was the situation? Who was playing who? Um, you know, that's a, that's a good point. The first game I ever did was at Colorado. Uh, we played the Buffaloes, and uh, it was there, not not at home. And I, one of the things I remember most about the whole situation was that at that point, I'd never done any football anywhere. Um, and so I had to been, come to camp in 1975, and in those days, Cal actually practiced at St. Mary's out in Moraga, and I basically threw myself on the mercy of Mike White and said, Mike, uh, I said, I'm, I'm more than willing to, to learn everything you can possibly tell me. The only football experience I have is as a fan or one year of junior college football on the uh, state champs in Illinois, but that was about it, and I wasn't even a starter, so uh, help <laughs> And so he and several players uh, really took me under their wings, as it were. They let me go into all the meetings, explain how this works, how that works. That was a tremendous advantage. And so by the time the first game came around, I knew that I still wasn't where I needed to be. But we were going to Colorado and we get the charter heading off to, to play the Buffaloes uh, for the first time. And on the plane... One of the sponsors was uh, uh, that year on uh, our radio broadcast on KGO was San Francisco Federal Savings and Loan. And the president, like often sponsors do, tend to travel on the charters with the teams. And so the president of the San Francisco Federal Savings and Loan uh, came up to me on the plane and he said, do you know that you are the third play-by-play -play broadcaster we've had in three years? He says, how long are you going to be here? 
I said, as long as I want. Oh, um, great uh, answer. So, you know, a little smarmy, uh, but I, I felt that he was being a wise guy. So I was going to give it to him right back. And to be honest, I never thought it would uh, it would ever go 48 years. But here we are. And uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it. No question. 48 years, 500 plus games. I mean, it's unbelievable. I remember my first broadcast. And again, I had no experience. I didn't go to school to be a broadcaster. I went to school to be a teacher and a coach. And that didn't work out too well, making $3,000 my first year as a teacher. Okay. No but the, my first game was at a small radio station in Coos Bay, Oregon. Um, and I was broadcasting Marshfield High School Athletics. So Marshfield High School, that's where the great Steve Prefontaine went. Mel Counts, if people remember, you know, the, the Lakers and Oregon State. In the, in the sure. So the first game was at a place called Fortuna, California, Northern California. And they didn't have a press box. They didn't have a courtside location. I had a suitcase with my gear. I sat in the top row and that was my broadcast location. So it was not quite as luxurious as your first broadcast location, I would say. And in the, the end of the third quarter, a player from the opposing team hit a, hit a shot from three quarters court and everybody st stood up and yelled and screamed. And they knocked the suitcase off my lap with oh, all no. the equipment on it. So not <laughs> all the equipment is under the bleachers. Okay. Oh my. Under the bleachers, and I got it together to, you know, to get the final score, and that's about it. But is there any broadcast location? Because you've done all kind of sports. Any location at all that's just been bizarre where you go, how in the world am I going to do a game from here? I thought the worst, uh, one of the worst we ever had um, uh, is just the latest. The game at Oregon State was appalling. Oh, yes. I've never, I, at this level, I have never worked in a worse location than what we had at Corvallis, where there were literally no fans sitting on an entire one side of the stadium. These, uh, the broadcast booths were in like the 20th row, if that high. There was no heat. The windows were open and we were on the five yard line. So that's about that's like kind of working a high school game when you're volunteering to to help out the high school cheerleader or something. It just that was one of the all time worst. Um, there have been a couple others. In fact, I remember one when uh, Lee Grosskep and I uh, did a game one time at uh, uh, West Point. Uh, what could be more thrilling? Get a chance to do a game at West Point, the Army, and all that sort of thing. But believe it or not, they put us back to back above each other, three rows back in the press box. So we weren't, we weren't even in the front row, for God's sake. So there have been some unique uh, locations over the years. Yeah, last week was a cargo container uh, at the five-yard line. Yeah. So, you know, we did a couple of games. Remember the Cheez-It Bowl? And remember the one year the Bears were over in San Francisco, played at Pac Bell, where you were in the end zone. And you, you can't yeah. tell if – unless it's really close to your end of the field. If anything beyond the 30 or 40-yard line going the other way, you can't tell if it's a three-yard gain or a – 13-yard gain or an 18-yard gain. I mean, that that would be really tough. Somebody should tell people that just because we're in a baseball stadium, we shouldn't have to broadcast from the baseball booth. Exactly. That's what happened, as you say, at the Cheez-It Bowl and at the, at the game in San Francisco. So that, uh, that if you can't read the yard lines, it does cause a problem. That was a game where it was like the old days at the, the Metropolitan Stadium with the Vikings and you know Detroit in the NFL where the teams were on the same side. So, so the Bears and Miami were on the same side of the field. And so for me, I had to run through because there was there was nothing, no alleyway behind the teams. I had to run through both teams to get to the other end of the field. And so 
we've both gone through those difficult situations. It makes well, sure as you right. probably know, and some people probably know this, that I my first foray into the NFL was with the Vikings. I yeah. had applied to every team in the NFL after the 76 season because I thought now I've got a college on my resume, but I really wanted to break in the NFL. So I sent a resume to every single team. And the Vikings answered me. It was an interesting call back because this was the, the, the deal. They said, look, Ray Scott has a contract with Tampa that he can't get out of this year. He said, if you would like to take the job for one year, you are welcome to be our play-by-play guy. And I said, are you kidding? Put that on my resume that I'm in the NFL with the Vikings. And so you're right. We worked outdoors in Metropolitan Stadium. And there were some days where it was stunningly cold, but at least there were heaters in the press box (laughs) as opposed to Oregon State. Yeah, no heaters in there, and you're lucky that they didn't shut the doors and, and ship you off on some rail line to someplace in the Midwest yes. of the game. All right, let's talk about, you know, last week's big game, your final big game. Um, you're, you're up on the press box, and what are your thoughts as the game is progressing or, or before the game even? Are you thinking, you know, this is my final big game, or once the game starts, you get totally caught up in the actual game itself and you're not trying to reminisce it's it would have been difficult i think for me and a lot of other people not to as the game is progressing saying man this is the last time i'm going to watch a big game from the press box with a microphone i don't think it i I let it get to me until uh right at the end of the game when the crowd came out of the stands that's that really kind of put it across because there's such emotion around that game win or lose and it was a big crowd the biggest crowd we've had for it now in several years and so there's drama he actually had a fumble and uh kind of a lateral and all those kind of things uh, uh, reminiscing of the famous 82 game and so yeah as as it unfolded at the end of the game i really kind of took it all in watching all the uh, fans on the field and uh the players interacting and and the coach uh, wilcox as well saying how much of a kick he got out of it and so it was a very special way to finish no doubt about it all right, this week, tell us about preparing for the game and also the nostalgia you have uh, the last time in the booth. So what, what's this week been like so far and what's it going to be the rest of the week? Well, it has been chaotic now for a couple of weeks because there was so much around the uh, anniversary of the play. So we've just had one interview after another. Um, I mean, I can't thank the uh, the media has been absolutely wonderful. I mean, from uh, the Today Show to ESPN to all the local sports writers and the broadcasters have made this an incredible event for me. Far more than I deserve, frankly, but I'll take it. It's uh, It's been great. And now going to the final game, again, I think that I will handle it very well until about next uh, late spring because that's <laughs> when you start, you know, it gets into your head that, oh, camp's starting. You know, I, got, I better start paying attention to the newspapers and look at the stories and all that. I think that's where I'll get it. I don't think uh, it's been a problem during the year because you get so caught up in it and you're so busy and so involved in preparing and all that. I don't think that that is, is, has made it very difficult up to this point, but I think that's about to change. You know, all of the great games, all of the great players, obviously the play, your time of the 49ers. Um, I was in Pittsburgh. When you were doing the Pittsburgh Penguins uh, for a little while, when your career was getting started. So uh, your voice was familiar back there to me at the time. Um, and it, it would not be fair to say, what is your favorite player or your favorite coach? So that's, But I think you would probably agree with me, Joe, that you know the score is one thing. 
Um, interviews, preparation is another thing. But the thing that we remember the most are the relationships that we have with the people that we work with, the people that we cover, uh, the people that are in the press box. You, you become really good friends and they become such a part of your life. It's just it's the relationships with those people that probably mean more than any single play or any single game. I, I agree with that. Uh, absolutely. One hundred percent. Um, for example, probably many people know that uh, um, I watched Gary Plummer play for Cal. He was in the play. Um, I watched him play for the 49ers. And the next thing you know, he's my partner on 49er broadcast. Uh, I've had long-term friendships with a lot of people uh, from, from the football program. Uh, the coaches today, I could probably call Keith Gilbertson and say, you want to go to dinner? And he'd say, I'll be right there. I mean, I've, I've tried to stay close to all those people. Last time we played at Brigham Young, who did I go to lunch with? But uh, but uh, our, our great pal um, of all the years there, Tom Homo. So I've kept it. And the, you're right. The relationships are what it's all about. Mike White is an all-time hero for me because he got me started. He was such a help a help to start with it. So we've had a chance to visit over the years. Now, the coaches are special. Steve Mariucci, uh, the Mooch and I were very close at one time because we were so uh, in proximity, and he's still a good friend. But, you know, he was at Cal, and then he's the 49er head coach. And so you have all these things that interact where you're with a guy for a while and then you don't see him for a while and all of a sudden he's back in the, in your universe because he's now a coach or now involved in some way or another uh, with your life. And all those things are great. That's what's special about it is being able to do that. Yeah, no question about that. Um, and as we you know wind down here, um, I think we all uh, owe you a, a great deal of gratitude. I, I think as a broadcaster, Everybody has a different style, okay, a different inflection, a different way they approach the games. One of the things that I've learned from you is that it's more than just a game, that it's enjoyment for that three, three and a half hours every Saturday, or in this case on a Friday. And your ability, and you've always talked about, you know, maybe wanting to be the Chicago Cubs baseball announcer. And you'd have been really, really good at that because one of the things baseball announcers have to do, having done it, and I think it's a really difficult job to do, is you have to have the ability to keep the audience engaged by telling stories. And you are one of the great storytellers I have ever known, whether it's broadcasting or anything else. Your ability to, 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 uh, to spin a yarn so to speak. And your stories are just phenomenal. And that's one of the things that I learned. And, and it was because when I, that first year I was at Cal, you welcomed me into the broadcast team and immediately the stories come out. And it was just, it was so engaging. And in a game, and you've called many and I have as well, where it's 52 to six and there ain't much going on and who knows who's listening, but your ability to keep people engaged with the ability to tell stories I think it's just been wonderful. Is that something that you always wanted to do? Is it something you feel comfortable with? How did that come about? You know, I don't know. I think that's, that's uh, it, I guess it's just built on uh, my personality for doing this, that, that you feel that you, you need to tell stories, that you can't do it without it, that if you just do X's and O's, people aren't going to be very interested. 
I think it, to make it a complete broadcast, all that other stuff is really important. If you can't tell tidbits about uh, some guy who's just uh, picked up a fumble and uh, run for a touchdown or uh, made a play that uh, some guy you've never even heard of. And, but I try to have a, uh, something on every single player, starter or backup, when I come into a game at any sport, whether it's been hockey or basketball or football or soccer, whatever it's been, I always made sure that I had a note about everybody I could get a note about so that I had material if the game goes south. A lot of games do go south, you know, where either you have a huge lead or a huge loss and deficit. So you can't just say, well, folks, that's about it. I guess the closest I ever came to that was one year when I was doing uh, hockey for the Seals. We went to uh, New Jersey to play the Devils and the score was eight to nothing uh, late in the second period, which is ridiculous for an NHL score. Okay, so this was a Monday night. And it was the night that on television, if people remember this era, Rhoda got married. <laughs> and so I actually said on the air, this I'm, this is my rookie year, by the way. So it's a wonder I didn't get fired. I said, you know, folks, it's eight to nothing. Cal, I mean, the, the SEALs are getting clobbered here. You know, if I were you, I'd turn me off and go watch Rhoda. <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't go over real well with management, though. <laughs> yeah, probably not with the sponsors as well. I think the best That's one right. in that yes. regard I ever heard was Chip Carey, you know, the late broadcaster for the Atlanta Braves. It, it was it was similar to you in that he could spin a yarn and weave it into the course of the game. And the Braves are getting pummeled like, you know, it's 18 to 3 in the, in the top of the eighth. Yep. And he said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you promise to patronize our sponsors, you have our permission to go walk the dog. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's great. A great line. Uh, so, well, that's how you endear yourself with the audience. The audience yeah. has to believe that you really care and that you're one of them. And you've, you've got to relate to that. If you don't, uh, I don't think you can make it in this business well. Uh, certainly not going to have the longevity that you've had. I very much look forward to the game on Friday to be part of the celebration of your phenomenal career. And uh, there'll be a few tears shed in the press box, and I'm sure there'll be a few shed on, on the sideline as well as uh, the broadcast uh, unfolds. But again, I appreciate your time today. I know you got a really busy week and uh, look forward to seeing you on Friday. You and your wife and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving as well. And we'll see you on Friday. You bet. And thanks to you, uh, you and Mike. Uh, I couldn't ask for better partners on the broadcast. I appreciate everything you do. Thank you very much. And uh, we hope the Bears conclude your career with a big win over the Bruins. That wraps it up for this week's episode and our podcast. We appreciate Coach Wilcox and Joe Starkey for being with us this week. We'll be on the air for the Bud Light Tailgate Show beginning at 12.30 p.m. I'm going to say Saturday. It's Friday from Memorial Stadium, the Bears against the UCLA Bruins. Until then, I'm Todd McKim. Thanks for listening. And as always, go Bears. This has been Bear in Mind, the official podcast of Cal Athletics with your host, Todd McKim. The preceding has been a Learfield presentation of the California Golden Bears Sports Network.